my name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Crime Crime Stories. Stories. A weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. True crime headlines. True crime headlines. Okay, so I'm very excited for this week's true crime headlines. So the very first one I have is from People.com because we love People.com. Nice. Um, so mine is from November 30th, 2020, and it says, after high-speed chase ends in crash, woman's body is found in trunk. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that, and I was going to read it, and I was like, no, because I want to I wanna wait. So, oh, do you want me to read it to nope. you? Well, give me, like, the... Yeah. Give me the... Give me the blurb. Give you the blurb. Mm-hmm. Authorities in Texas are investigating the death of a woman whose body was allegedly found in the trunk of a car involved in a high-speed chase. Mm. On Saturday morning, authorities responded to reports of a reckless driver. After a high-speed pursuit, the driver later identified um, by the Texas Department of Public Safety as Victor Charles Campbell hit a concrete barrier and lost control of his car. Hmm. Dang. And basically... drunk. Yeah. uh, The body of 28-year-old Brianna Johnson of Houston was allegedly found in its trunk. Poor thing. That's awful. So, uh, Campbell was taken into custody, charged with abuse of a corpse, tampering with evidence, driving while intoxicated, and felony invading arrest with additional felony charges pending. Yeah. So, I'd be kind of interested to see how... Where that's going to all wind up? Yes. Yeah, because I'm very curious of, like, did he... Did he, like, grave rob her out of her grave? Like, was she already dead and he, like, stole her? Um... Or did he kill her and then was... Trying to like escape where he killed her from. I mean, they're not going to know. I'm, well, I'm curious. It doesn't. If- it 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 doesn't sound like she ha- was passed. Like it sounded like sh- her family thought she was alive. So like, oh, like she's still alive, or she died in the accident. Died probably prior to the accident, but she wasn't like buried. Got oh. Oh, I see what you're yeah. saying. So, like, the discovery of her body was this discovery that she had been deceased. Yes. So, um, basically, her aunt had started a GoFundMe, and it says, as of now, we don't have many answers or much uh, information, but we do know we have to prepare to bring my niece home and lay her to rest. <sighs> That's awful. Isn't that crazy? That's awful. Yeah. And it said, Anna was the sweetest person in the world, and if you knew her, um, I know she left her mark in your life. Ugh. And she didn't deserve this, and we will never understand. That's awful. Mm-hmm. Man. Kicking it off with a doozy. All right. Crazy. Mm-hmm. And then my next one, I was, like, blown away by this one. Um, it actually popped up on my feed today. But it is from November 29th, 2020. And this is on Heavy.com. And it says, stalker climbs into apartment while woman records TikTok video. Did you see the video? Yes. It was insanity. I literally was like... What in the... Did you see this video? And you know that I don't do, like, the TikToks. No. I'm not a TikTok gal. No. I watched the video because, of course, like, then it became news. So oh, yeah. So, releasing the video and stuff. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Yeah. And then it's, like... And then the fact that, like... But I'm, like, what door did he come in from? It was, there was the a door. door from her balcony. Oh, that was the door for the yes, balcony? Yes. It was her door for her balcony. He see, this scaled- is why... Like, the side of her building to come into her balcony. See, this is why, like, okay, uh, old roommates would not lock the doors. And I'm like, this is why I have anxiety about my doors being locked. Because there was one night I was cleaning, and, like, my roommate came in. And, like, I went to go check the door, and it wasn't locked. And I was like, hey, you didn't lock the door. And she's like, well, you were there. And I'm like, I'm also vacuuming. And, like, 
I wouldn't have heard someone come into the house. And you being there is kind of actually more of a reason to lock the door. Can you yes. please protect me? Thank you very much. Like, keep me safe? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So those are my Dude. true crime headlines for the week. Crazy pants. Crazy true pants. crime crazy headlines. Pants. True crime headlines. We're going to we'll, get there one day. We'll figure it out. It's going to happen. <laughs> The dogs are barking in the other room like, no, not that one. <laughs> Do something Not else. that one. Do something else. Okay. I worked. <sighs> okay. All right. So, so we're going to uh, send it off to Charlie for this week's story. This week's bad crime story is incredibly disturbing and upsetting. So I actually did put a trigger warning on this one, um, which... I know that we're listening to a true crime podcast and like the whole thing is kind of a trigger warning. However, um, I do want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault and rape of a minor. So just FYI, I don't obviously go into detail, but there is mention of sexual assault and rape on a minor in the story. And that story, folks, today is the Cheshire Murders in Cheshire, Connecticut. I haven't heard these. Oh, you if know I them. have, if I have, I'm not. It's not ringing a bell right now. I, and then my light bulb will go off, and I'll be like, Yeah, know this. I can almost promise that you do know these. Probably. If you listen to my <gasps> wait, wait, is this the? I'll let you tell the story. I think <laughs> Thank I do. You. Know it. <laughs> okay, so I have uh, quite a few sources for this episode. Um, my main source was from an article from medium.com that did a really great um, detailed kind of by the minute recap of the events of the story. Um, <clears throat> I also got some information from two local newspapers. So the Hartford Current and the New Haven Register. Um, there was some information that I pulled from the New York Times and then finally from the Cheshire Murders HBO documentary. So, our story takes place in Cheshire, Connecticut. Uh, Cheshire was originally a farming town in Connecticut, but as Connecticut grew and the the city surrounding Cheshire grew, it became um, somewhat of a bedroom community, so it serves as the hometown for many of the people who work in the larger cities nearby. So, it's a lot of middle class to upper middle class families. Is that what that's called? What, a bedroom? A bedroom? Yeah. So, like... It's your area where you rest your head. It's your bedroom community. So okay. you, you live there. You don't work there. Oh, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it serves that that area around there. So like Hartford area. Um, what's the New Haven, Connecticut is over there. So like the universities and stuff like that right over in the area. So some notable people from Cheshire, Connecticut include Chris Berman, the legendary ESPN sports announcer, J.P. Morgan, the historical American businessman, and James Vanderpeek. The Dawson. (laughs) The Dawson. (laughs) So, um, all right. So we are going to now meet the Pettit family. So uh, the father of the Pettit family is Dr. William Pettit. He was an endocrinologist in nearby Plainfield, Connecticut. He was also the medical director of the Joslin Diabetes Center um, at Connecticut's Central Hospital. The mother of the Pettit family is Jennifer Hawk Pettit. She was a nurse. Uh, She was actually a pediatric nurse. And she was the co-director of the Health Center at Cheshire Academy which is a private boarding school in Cheshire. She met her husband at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in 1985 when she was a new oncology nurse, and he was a third-year medical student at the University of Pittsburgh. And the two of them actually were married in 1985. 
So the Pettits had two daughters. Their oldest daughter was Haley. She was born October 15th, 1989. Um, at the time, the story kind of begins. She had just graduated from Miss Porter's school. Uh, Miss Porter School is actually a very famous boarding school for girls um, in that area. Actually, Jackie Kennedy went to Miss Porter's. So she ran varsity cross country. She played varsity basketball. She rode varsity crew. And she was a high honor roll student. While she was at Miss Porter, she was also elected to the senior leadership position of athletic association head. So AAH. She also won a school award for exceptional community service. So Haley was scheduled to attend Dartmouth College in the fall where she wanted to study medicine. So just like her parents who studied medicine, she wanted to follow in their footsteps. She had also been an active fundraiser for multiple sclerosis research because her mother had been um, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis with MS. So she captained a walk MS team called Haley's Hope. Um, when you watch the documentary, they interviewed one of her friends and she had said that like Haley never talked about that. She never talked about the philanthropic work that she was doing with MS because like she was, she was such a humble person that she didn't want the accolade. She just wanted to do the work and make the money to donate to the cause because that's just the type of, she was just that giving and loving mm. and, and warm. So I wish I could be that humble. Yeah. Like, people like that. I'm just like, they're, I, they're so special. I like to pretend that I am. Like, because I, I am a person who likes to give and give charitably yeah. and all that stuff. But I don't know. Like, I, I like to think of myself as being that humble. But when I read something like that, I'm like, I just think that yeah. that is so cool. Especially for somebody so young. She was 17 years old. Yeah. And she was like, I don't want anybody to even know that I'm doing this. I just want to do the work. Which mm-hmm. I just think is fantastic. Yeah. So the Pettit's younger daughter, Michaela, she was born on November 17th, 1995, and she had attended the Chase Collegiate School. Um, after Haley left for college, Michaela was planning on taking over Haley's Hope and changing the name to it to Michaela's Miracle. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to take over where Haley was going off to school. She was like, I'm going to take this on for myself and do the work that you're doing, which I think is really cool. And she also loved to cook for her family. Like she wanted to learn how to cook really great foods and um and stuff like that and i thought that was really really cool um her family the family nicknamed her kk so that was what they what they called her so um on one of those many nights where michaela decided that she wanted to cook for her family um her and her mother went to the local stop and shop to get groceries it was sunday july 22nd 2007 it was during this trip that jennifer and michaela caught the attention of joshua kamasarjevsky so joshua kamasarjevsky 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 was born on August 10th, 1980, and was adopted by Ben and Jude Komisarjewski when he was only two weeks old. Adoption officials did not tell the family much about his biological parents, other that, uh, other than that the baby's mother was 16 and that his father was a mechanic barely out of his teens. So by the early 80s, the Komisarjewski's household was very crowded. It was very... Um, mismatched i guess you could say or quite a mismatch of different personalities and different types of people so in addition to young joshua there was a daughter naomi who was born to jude naturally right after joshua was adopted and there was also two foster teenagers named scott and beverly both of whom had been abused when they were younger Um, scott also was developmentally challenged Jude had actually discovered that Scott was sexually assaulting Joshua and the other children, so he was actually removed from the home. 
Later, Ben Komisarjewski claims that in the early 90s, his daughter had accused Joshua of sexually assaulting her. And even though he said he was shocked, but he also conceded that it was likely true. Um, however, him and his wife didn't really trust psychology. They were super religious and they turned to their faith for help. This kind of sounds like next week's story, but not like faith wise. Just like not acknowledging that things are not correct. Mm. I, I just, yeah, there seemed to have been a decent amount of red flags and I'm not placing blame on anybody other than who done it. <laughs> um, but there seemed to have been a lot of exactly a lot of red flags um, in the childhood. So, um, and we'll be meeting one other person later on who similarly had quite a few red flags that were not heated. So it's disappointing. So Joshua winds up falling in with a tough crowd through his teenage years. He was causing mischief around town. Um, him and his friends would shoot out neighbors' windows with a BB gun and then run away. Little bitches. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reckless behavior continued through his teens, and Joshua winds up joining the Army Reserves in the late 90s. When Joshua Karmaserjevsky returns home from basic training to work at a ski area... Wait, did you his- say... Late 90s? Late 90s. Oh, okay. Because yes. I was like, he was born in 80. He was born in 1980. Okay. Yeah. So he was in his late teens. Okay. Um, when Joshua returned home from basic training to work at a ski area near his uh, his unit in Rochester, New York, he fa- failed to stay clear of the criminal activity. So he returned to Connecticut where he got into drugs with a girl in Bristol and got her pregnant. So right around the time that his daughter was born in 2002, Joshua Commissar Jeffsky went to prison for burglary, which was the start of what would become a stretch of burglaries. Um, After one of his prison stays, he was paroled in April of 2006, and he was staying at the Silliman Halfway House where he met Stephen J. Hayes. So Stephen Hayes was born in Homestead, Florida on May 30th, 1963. He received his first adult conviction for burglary in 1980 when he was 16. So police reports show his specialty became breaking into cars with rocks at a public park. That sounds really difficult to do. It sounds very messy to do. Yeah. And loud. I was trying to be sarcastic. And easy to be. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I was like, they made it seem no. like they made it seem like his expertise is breaking yes. into cars with rocks. And I'm like, that doesn't sound very hard. Yes. <laughs> I think anybody could really be an expert at that if they had rock in a car and a good throwing arm. <laughs> when he was granted parole um, f- after his first prison stint in 1982, he violated it seven weeks later. Hayes spent most of the next 25 years incarcerated, racking up nearly 30 arrests in total. His parole was twice revoked based on poor history of compliance with community release programs. And at one point, he only lasted on parole for a single day before violating and thrown back in jail. Why do they release these people? I don't understand. And then there's people that are in jail for having like a quarter of marijuana Uh, for like um, their whole life. It's the war on drugs, Nikki. I don't understand. (sighs) I don't understand. That was also sarcasm, by the way, because you couldn't pick that up. Um, A 1994 document reported that Stephen Hayes had a long chronic history of substance abuse, citing marijuana and alcohol as his drugs of choice, but noting that he also used cocaine. In August 1996, while placed at a halfway house, Hayes took his paycheck from his job at a Hartford restaurant and smoked cocaine with a sex worker, according to an affidavit that he gave the authorities afterward. Realizing he would be in trouble for violating a condition of his parole, he spent 11 days on the run. 
So now we have the joining of Joshua Komisarjevsky and Stephen Hayes during their stay at this halfway house in 2006. Um, and during their stay, they kind of evolve into this weird friendship. And about 18 months later, they find themselves in July of 2007 desperate for money. So Stephen wants to help fuel both his re-emerging drug problem um and he needs to hide it from his mother and brother because they're becoming suspicious that he's using again he had saved all this money up to buy a truck and it like mysteriously disappeared and um so he's trying to regain some money so he can buy the truck and pretend that he is still clean joshua needs the money because he wants to try and help bring his 18 year old girlfriend back to connecticut from arizona where she had moved with her family so his girlfriend's name is caroline her father did not approve of their relationship um not only because joshua was 27 years old and she was only 18 um but her father also knew about joshua's criminal past he was certain that not only was joshua a career criminal but he also was convinced that he was a pedophile and he believed that because his daughter, even though she was 18 years old, she looked like she was like 12. Like she looked incredibly young. She acted very young. She was very mature and very naive. And the father was very creeped out by the fact that Joshua was so attracted to his daughter who looked so young and acted so young. So there was a lot of concerns there about his intentions. So the two hatch a plot that they're going to get funds by breaking into a home and ransacking the home and getting money. So on July 22nd, 2007, around 745, Hayes texts uh, Joshua saying that he's chomping at the bit to get started and that he soon would need a margarita. So I guess that was his release after a crime, I'm assuming. So an hour later, Commissar Jeski texts Hayes and says that he's putting his five-year-old daughter to bed and that he would be ready to get the show on the road shortly. So this brings us back to the beginning of our story in the Stop and Shop grocery store parking lot where police say Joshua notices 11-year-old KK Pettit with her mother Jennifer and he follows them home. So he was excited to see that the house that they went home to was the largest on the block, and he figured they were in for a very big payday at the Pettit home. Stephen Hayes and Joshua Komisarjevsky arrive at the Pettit household around 3 a.m. on July 23, 2007, and find Dr. William Pettit fast asleep on the couch in the sunroom where he had fallen asleep after a night of reading. Joshua used a baseball bat and struck Dr. Pettit four or five times around the head. He, um, he and Hayes bound his wrists and ankles with zip ties and rope. They found Haley in her room where she was also bound with rope and zip ties. Michaela and Jennifer were in the master bedroom asleep. Michaela had fallen asleep next to her mother after reading a Harry Potter novel. Um, there the two were restrained. Um, all three of the women were bound by their wrists and ankles and secured to the bedposts. Joshua and Hayes um, then took Dr. Pettit to the basement where he was bound to a support pole in the basement. Stephen and Joshua were ransacking the house for money, were not satisfied with what they found, but then they found a check register from Bank of America with $40,000 notated as the balance in the ledger. So they decided to steal $15,000 from the family. So in the early morning hours of that morning, um, there was surveillance tape from a local gas station that finds Stephen Hayes at the gas station paying uh, for two um, gas cans worth of gasoline that were stolen from the Pettit household. And later on in that morning um, as well, once the bank was open, it was around 9 a.m., <clears throat> Stephen Hayes drove with Jennifer Hawks Pettit to the bank 
to get her to withdraw the fifteen thousand dollars they were planning. Okay, on, that's, that's there where, it is. I was oh, gonna no, no, say no. this is where you're gonna remember what. No, the I story don't. Is. I still don't remember this. Oh, okay. but I was just gonna say I was wondering how they were gonna get the funds. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, I was just <clears> like, <throat> you can't just like get the funds. Write me a check. Just, yeah, <laughs> they'll never like, catch me. Yeah. Um. So Hayes drove with Jennifer Hawks Pettit to the bank to get her to withdraw the fifteen thousand they were planning on stealing from the family's bank account. Uh, Jennifer was able to tell the bank teller what was going on, and the teller alerted the bank manager. The manager recalls her looking petrified. Um, even if she appeared calm and normal, there was the request was raising red flags. Her hands were very shaky. You can tell she was tired, sleep deprived. Um, the bank account that Jennifer tried to draw from was a joint account, and it was titled in a way that the teller wasn't able to withdraw the money without Dr. Pettit's signature. But because the teller and the manager kind of said, hey, we know this isn't a scam, we know something's going on, they arranged for Jennifer to take out a line of credit that would allow her to get the 15000 she requested. The teller explained to the manager what Hayes told Mrs. Hawk Pettit that he was intending to kill her family if the police were notified. But the manager snuck into her office, turned out the lights and called 911 anyway, which I love that she did that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> because both of the men were with her at that time. Or only, no? only Stephen. Uh, okay. Yeah. Only Stephen was with her. Um, he was the only one who left the house to go pick up the gas. And he went with Jennifer to the bank. And he was outside waiting in a car. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, upon their return home, uh, Commissar Jeski informs Hayes that he had sexually assaulted Michaela. He performed oral sex on her and recorded the act on his phone. He also posed her in various sexual positions while he pleasured himself, snapping photos along the way. During questioning, Commissar Jeski said there was only contact but no rape, but the evidence left behind says differently. Commissar Jeski also tells Hayes that he needs to square things up. That's in quotes. I'm not just using that language by raping Jennifer, which Stephen Hayes then proceeds to do on the living room floor. At 9.51 a.m., a wounded Dr. Pettit emerges from the basement and starts hopping along the front yard towards a neighbor's house yelling for help. Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky can hear the commotion outside. They hear Dr. Pettit yelling, and it sent Stephen Hayes into just this absolute fury rage. He sees red. He strangles Jennifer to death right there in the middle of the living room. Um, To this day, both men blame each other for pouring gasoline around the house. So they take the gas cans that Stephen had filled up that morning. They pour it all over the house, um, cabinets, furniture. They even go upstairs and pour the gasoline directly on the girls who are tied up upstairs and they light a match and set the house on fire. Exactly five minutes later, the men burst out of the Pettit house, which was completely ablaze and they pile into the family's SUV. The duo rammed a police car while trying to escape and they were quickly apprehended. Um, When they were captured, Hayes gives police a fake name and says, "Uh, I'm Joe Smith and said that he didn't know if there was anybody left in the house. But Commissar Jeffsky immediately confesses and is like, yeah, there's three people in the house. And if you hurry, you might be able to save them. Like challenging them. Dick. Um, Inside the house, unfortunately, there was no one left to save. Michaela still tied to the bed. She died of smoke inhalation. Haley, a strong athlete, like we talked about earlier, she was able to take herself out of the restraints and start to crawl, but she succumbed to the smoke um, 
of the fire at the top of the staircase, and she too died of smoke inhalation. 33 minutes elapsed from the time the initial 911 call was made by the bank manager when police finally realized that at least one person inside the Pettit home was in physical distress. I just, uh, you would think that she was still at the bank while they were making this phone call, correct? Yeah. So you would think by the time that they would have got home. Uh Um, So watching the documentary... The bank manager called 911, supposedly, and this, like I said, this is part of the documentary, the cops went to the wrong Bank of America in town. At least two more members of the Pettit family might still be alive today if they had entered the house or at the bare minimum allowed the hostage negotiator to talk to the perpetrators. Many have questioned why police didn't stop Hayes and Jennifer at the bank. Um, to this day, the Cheshire police have not admitted to any wrongdoing or offered an apology or even an explanation to the families of the victims. When the Pettit and Hawk families um, and the community responded with outrage, the Cheshire police were forced to hold a news conference. In it, they praised the actions of the first responders that day, but few were convinced that the first responders did their jobs. Locals believe either they aren't, they weren't properly trained or they were too fearful to engage Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky. Both Commissar Jeffsky and Hayes were initially found guilty and sentenced to death, but in August 2015, those sentences became life sentences after Connecticut abolished the death penalty. So, in the wake of their horrible and troubling deaths, the Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle MS Memorial Fund was established to keep the girls' memory and their passion for charitable works for multiple sclerosis alive. On January 6, 2008, over 130,000 luminaria candles were lit in front of the thousands of homes across Cheshire. In Cheshire, I know, in Cheshire Lights of Hope, a fundraiser for multiple sclerosis and a tribute to the Pettit family. Um, It was founded by a local couple named Don and Jennifer Walsh, and the event raised over $100,000 for Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle Memorial Fund. On August 5th, 2002, Dr. Pettit remarried. Her name is Christine Poloff, and they moved to Farmington, Connecticut. He met her while she was volunteering with the Pettit Family Foundation. She gave birth to the couple's son in November 2013. In May 2016, Dr. Pettit announced a bid for Connecticut's 22nd House District, and he was elected and currently serves as a representative in the Connecticut House of Representatives. Dr. Pettit condemned the Connecticut Supreme Court's decision to abolish the death penalty in August 2015, saying he believed the court had overstepped its power and urging it to give greater consideration to the emotional impact, particularly on the victims and their loved ones, that death penalty causes generate. Jennifer's sister, Cindy Hawk Wren, told NBC News that she was disheartened by the court's ruling. And that is the awful, heartbreaking, scary, infuriating, tragic story of the deaths of Jennifer Hawk Pettit, Haley Pettit, and Michaela Pettit, the Cheshire Murders. Very good. Thank you. Golf clap. Thanks. So, in order to not end this episode on a super depressing note, Mm -hmm. we're going to introduce to you guys like this fun little activity that we're going to do. This was Jovi's idea, and she decided to challenge Nikki and I to kind of get out of our comfort zone. Yes. So, if you guys have noticed a little pattern in our stories... Me, Charlie, I wind up doing stuff that, like, I know. So these are the stories that I know and that I kind of grew up know, like, grew up telling and all that stuff, right? Um, and Nikki tends to tell a lot of stories that are very recent, very current, like current event news stories. So what Jovi wanted to do is kind of pull us out of our comfort zones, and we are going to be picking out of a hand. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a hat. Uh, no, we do not have a hat nearby. I have a skull. Oh, we have a skull. skull. We have a skull. We're going to pull it out of a skull, which how, which how apropos. So what Jovi has done was she has put in the skull 
five scraps of paper that have well, like, like one fell out of the eye hole. I literally feel <laughs> like I feel like uh, what Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire yes. when it just like flies out. Um, so what we're going to pick out of here are different decades, and what Jovi is challenging us to do is tell a story that we don't know. Right? Tell a story we don't know from the decade that we are choosing. So this is going to kind of do both things. It's going to be something we don't know, and um, it's going to be possibly a a little bit slightly historic-ish. So I'm going to pick out mine. I picked out mine too. You can fine? pick out mine. Yeah, you can Okay. Okay. So my next episode that you are going to hear from Ooh. me is from the 50s. Ooh. So I'm going... So Charlie's next episode, so two weeks from now, um, will be an episode from the 50s. So Nikki, yours is going to be three weeks from now, and yours is going to be from... The, the 70s. 70s. Oh, yeah. Super groovy. Ah! <laughs> That's what all the major, like... That's like major serial killer times. Yeah, that's a good one. And now I can't do one that I know, though, so I'm like, yeah. gonna find someone I don't know. Yeah. There, I was gonna say, uh, there in are the 70s, you're like, it's like a comedy of horrors. Um, so yeah, so the 50s. So my next... I feel like the 50s would be... My next very... creme. My next creme, because that's how we say it in French, the creme. That's okay. not... That's I don't think that's French at all. Wait, what? It's supposed to be crime, but oh, crime. I said it in a weird accent. I said creme. I could type it into my translator. We oh, we should do oh, that. Oh, yeah. Um, so my next creme. Hold on. Hold on. I need to learn how to say it in French. What? Dilly. What? Dilly. Dilly. So my next Dilly will be from the 50s. That's an awful French accent. And hey, people who out there who are French, I'm sorry um, that I did that and butchered your language. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of all the time we have here on this week's episode of Bed Crime Stories. Um, thank you all again for listening. We appreciate each and every single one of you. Make sure that you go out there and you subscribe and you rate and you leave messages of love and what are those called reviews and you give us five stars and you tell your friends and you go on instagram and you go on twitter and you like and you follow and you share our post and spread the love and the joy of bed crime stories to everybody that you know so we will see you all next week on the next episode of bed crime stories but until then sweet, sweet dreams, dreams. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.